When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast, and now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right, you're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, that's Ben Folks, we're both longtime MMA journalists, And for nearly the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, UFC 271, obviously, over the weekend down there at the Toyota Center in Houston, Texas. Israel Adesanya retains his middleweight title with a unanimous decision victory over Robert Whitaker. Tai Tuivasa continues his unstoppable march to the heavyweight championship with a second round KO over Derek Lewis. And Jared Cannonier comes from behind to defeat Derek Brunson, possibly solidifying his own number one contender status at 185 pounds. We got a lot to talk about on this week's show. But I guess first... In the biggest news of the weekend, speaking as one 40-year-old man to another, were you flying the dubs during the Super Bowl halftime show, bud? (laughs) Were you throwing up the the, the W while we got the the death row reunion, the aftermath reunion out there at the Super Bowl halftime show? When Dr. Dre sat down at the piano, I started to play. I got so hyped up that I didn't even care. That the piano kept playing after he got up. I mean, I tweeted this last night. Like, I, I, I legitimately felt a little misty when Dr. Dre started playing the piano. Because that's a dude, like, he almost died last year, from my understanding. Like, had a stroke. I think this was his first real big public appearance since that. And frankly, I thought the whole thing was pretty glorious from start to finish. I know... That 30 years removed from the rise of quote-unquote gangster rap, I have come to regard some of it as as pretty problematic. I have a hard time with a lot of it now, as we have discussed on various properties over here in the past. Like, obviously, Dr. Dre has done some, some bad stuff. Snoop Dogg just got uh, sued, I believe, for alleged sexual assault leading up to this Super Bowl halftime performance. I did not know that. Uh, but the, you know, if you if you can find it in your heart just to, to to watch the live performance and take it on its own merits, which I totally understand if some people can't do that. But like as Super Bowl halftime shows go, I thought this one was pretty good, man. Even the production values seemed right on for what it was. You know, sometimes these Super Bowl halftime shows, they're so far over the top and they're so overproduced in a way they're so big budget that they just seem goofy and i thought that they hit a nice they split the difference nicely i guess in terms of like having what felt like a big budget like stage performance 
but also kind of like staying true to, to this particular genre and how it was supposed to be. Uh, and I thought it was good. I thought it was great, man. Like, uh, I wonder if, if 50 cent bit off a little bit more than he can chew when he was like, Hey, I'm going to wrap the first verse of my song while hanging upside down. Uh, hanging upside down like a bat. That's my, that's my idea. But aside from that, like I thought they kind of knocked it out of the park. Did you though have a moment as I saw people, several people mention on Twitter where you were watching it and going, hell yeah, none of this trotting out old ass people from the 60s or 70s or whatever. Hell, you just get some dope ass musicians uh, for music of our time. Oh, wait a minute. Wait up. I just, I have aged into the demographic where now when they bring some old ass musicians out to do a thing, it sounds awesome to me because I grew up with that music. Yeah. Wait, I have become... Like this is my Paul McCartney, I, I have I have become exactly those people that I used to make fun of. Yeah, I had to have that reckoning as soon as I saw that this was announced as the halftime show. I was I was like, oh, that's different. And then a few seconds later, I was like, oh, because we're all so old now. Yeah. Because basically, oh. Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Eminem are our Bruce Springsteen in a yes. way. The other observation that I saw that rung true for me was well. Now I'm ready to accept that Tupac really is dead because he would have come back for this if he wasn't. Yeah, I saw a lot you of know? people saying they were hoping to get a uh, hologram Tupac. The Tupac hologram. And a hologram. Yeah. No, that, that'd be weird. Nate Dogg. That'd be weird. I agree with you. I felt like that would have been very strange, and I'm glad that they didn't do it. Uh, I said last week, I think over on the Patreon, that I wanted to see some six four Impalas out there. I believe I counted three <laughs> out on the stage. Some khaki suits so out was, there, too. That was good stuff. I don't know. I thought this... And again, it's probably just a sign of our advanced ages, but this Super Bowl halftime show hit me in the feels the way I don't know that anyone has done before. You know, I set up a fun little uh, Super Bowl gambling game for my children and friends who came over. Uh, my eldest daughter won it all. She the, the goal was to try to pick the score uh, at the end of each quarter and then pick the score at the end of the game. And as a, one of the tiebreaker questions asked you to pick what color of Gatorade would be dumped on the winning coach, the score she picked was 24-20 with the LA Rams winning, like one point off. And then she also correctly picked blue Gatorade. Who picks blue? Wow. She nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. I was very impressed. It's like, honestly, the, probably the most impressive thing that she's ever done as, as long as I've known her for her entire life. Speaking of which, I don't mean to metaphorically dump Haterade on your uh, your enchanting family anecdote here about the Super mm -hmm. Bowl. And for everybody yeah. who doesn't know, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. This podcast comes out for free every week on your timelines and podcast libraries over on the Patreon page, which you can get down with if you are so inclined, patreon.com slash event. We've got a patronage tier for every budget. We have fun there all week. On Fridays, we do a little something called $20 you never want to see again, where we yep. have an ongoing gambling competition between you and I, generally uh, restricted to mixed martial arts and the the uh, the betting options that we can get legally here in the state of Montana via the Montana Sports Betting app. Uh, this week, we kind of broadened our horizons a little bit to put down a couple of bets on the Super Bowl because, of course, it's a special week in America. It's the most American week of the year. So we had a couple bets on the Super Bowl. You're telling and and look, I bet on the Bengals. I should have taken the points. Had I taken mm -hmm. the points, I'd be big time in the money over here. Yep. Didn't take the points, lost that bet. I don't know how your third quarter bet turned out. 
I don't know. I have not yet tried to cash it because I bet the third quarter would have the most points scored. Had 13, same number as the second quarter. Uh, so I don't. I don't know how that works out. Uh, I'm assuming that the the sports gambling website is going to find a way to tell me that that is actually a loss for me. Yeah, that's a push right there. Uh, the point of my of bringing all this up is that apparently this wasn't enough for you. You have become such a degenerate gambler that you had to then devise an additional gambling scenario that you could play with your children? Mm-hmm. Well, for one thing, the thing I have found out from doing 20 bucks we never want to see again is I really love it. I, gambling is a lot of fun. <laughs> it, it, I, I find myself with urges to do it compulsively now all the time, and I, it's great. I feel like it's really it's going well. Uh, as we might end up talking about either today or on Friday, my MMA bets for UFC 271 didn't go that great. No, you kind of got smoked. I I've been meaning to tell you, Chad. I I'm in trouble with some bad people. Okay, <laughs> and I could use some help. For one thing, I was just wondering, like maybe if you had any expertise on the topic of faking your own death. That sounds like a that sounds like a fun and frankly easy solution that I would like to look into. And I was just wondering if you had any advice. Well, you know, now that we got this VPN stuff happening, we'll talk about a little bit more about that in a minute. Maybe we can get on there in a in an untraceable way and do some internet research. You and yeah. me will figure this out, man. We'll get you out of this. How about if you just stand on the shore as I push my boat off into the lake, and you're like, "Well, there goes Ben out for a." Just a, a day joy ride on his boat. Oh no, the boat exploded. He must be dead. <laughs> wow. Let's uh, not look for it. Let's just assume he has died and grieve in our own ways and then move on. You know, I, I'm I'm okay to help you with this secretly in a way that will never be traced back to me now that we've talked about it on this show. Uh, but I would rather not be prosecuted. I would rather not fall into suspicion in any way uh, for a murder that I didn't commit. So I don't know, maybe, I mean, at some point I can take you so far, but then you're going to have to be on your own. You know what I'm saying? It's probably better that I don't know. Listen, you're not wrong to think that you would be the prime suspect if I turned up murdered or missing. And frankly, I've left a number of documents around this house that if I do turn up murdered or missing, look into Chad Dundas. I've, I've look at the CME bank account, search for any unusual activity. Yeah. That's, you know, I've, those are my instructions left behind. But look, all I'm saying is here's where I need you to step up and be a friend, man. Be a friend. Help me fake my own death. Uh, risk life in the penitentiary if you have to. But damn it. Just think of somebody other than yourself. I'm in trouble with bad people, Chad. I have always they're heard. They're calling my phone. Friends, you don't know what they're saying to me. Friends help friends fake their own deaths if that's yeah. if that's what it comes to. 100%. Friends, don't forget to go out and follow us on Instagram at CME if you nasty or like us over on Facebook at facebook.com slash co main event. Like I just said, you can join the team over at patreon.com slash co main event where we're having fun all week long with the Wednesday live chat, the Thursday doing the damn thing podcast and the Friday power hour. It just keeps rolling over there. Uh, head on over patreon.com slash co main event and find a way to join the team. We got music this week from our guys foreign cash. That's C-A-C-H-E, an L.A.-based production duo. If you like what you hear from them on the show, you can check out more of their stuff over at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com slash foreigncash. And, of course, that's cash, C-H, or no, I'm sorry, C-A-C-H-E. 
in cash. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Robert Whitaker may have fought the best fight he possibly could on Saturday night, but Israel Adesanya was still just too good. And in round number two, the prophecy is nearly fulfilled. Tai Tuivasa <laughs> will be champion by the end of 2022. Or at least he had more for Derek Lewis than a lot of people bargained for, I guess. And in round number three, Jared Cannonier calls dibs on Israel Adesanya. Sean Strickland is still creeping around being a creep. Israel Adesanya's coach says he wants to give light heavyweight another shot. What's really going on? in the middleweight division right now all that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff but first like we always do about this time let's do a little bit of listener mail listener mail this week's listener mail is brought to you once again by nordvpn nordvpn is the fastest vpn in the world it's reliable i just got it this week i gotta say it's easy to download to put on the computer to get set up right now my computer thinks I'm in Indonesia as we're doing this, as we are recording this. Ben, how's it going for you sailing the high seas of the internet now that you've got your NordVPN uh, subscription set up? Well, you can call me Romanian Ben okay. because that's where I'm coming to you from uh -huh. right now. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I'm loving it. And frankly, if any co-maniacs out there listening to this and they're wondering, hey, where could I get a VPN that has an auto connect feature that turns on whenever I connect to new Wi-Fi networks? Uh, what what has threat protection light to protect me against malicious websites? How about a dark web monitor to alert me if my information has been exposed on the dark web? Frankly, how about some goddamn file protection with secure cloud storage, brother? NordVPN has it all. CNET has called it an encryption powerhouse with the biggest VPN bang for your buck. That's them saying it. That's not us. Whew. NordVPN. Go ahead. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash comain and use the code comain to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus one additional month for free and a bonus gift. It's completely risk-free with NordVPN's 30-day money-back guarantee. Again, the code to use. Comain. That's all one Co-main. You know, and I heard from a couple co-maniacs as uh, this weekend's UFC pay-per-view was getting ready to start up where they were like, hey, is that NordVPN co-main deal still going? Uh, I found their timing interesting when they were asking me, but I told them, yes, as a matter of fact, it is. Go go ahead and get your VPN on. Couldn't possibly know what you're talking about there. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Inglefer Arneson. Okay. Who a Google well, search tells me was the first permanent Norse settler of Iceland. Yeah. So good to hear from him. Yeah. He writes, so it looks like Robert Knuckles is doomed to play uh, Solari to Izzy's Mozart. Okay. See, you know, this is, it's the, it's the, the community of listeners that we have on this podcast that really makes it for me. We're talking about Go MMA ahead. and we're learning stuff. Yeah. How do fighters deal with being the second best of a generation? In some ways, it seems a little bit worse than being a perennial middle of the pack contender. Love you so much. Thanks, Inglefer. Uh, this is a good question. And obviously, we're going to talk more about Robert Whitaker and Israel Adesanya and how their specific fight played out coming up in round number one. Uh, but it does kind of seem like Robert Whitaker is, is going to be a guy where we'll look back on it and say, well, he could have been a long time 185 champ, 185 pound champ, if not for the emergence of Israel Adesanya. And there are a lot of dudes 
that you could say that about in mixed martial arts over the years. And I agree that it must be the kind of thing that stings and burns in a real unique kind of way. Yeah. Before we get too teary eyed for Robert Whitaker, however, worth mentioning he has been UFC middleweight champion before in the past. So he, he had some time with the belt, even if that time never comes back again. And to say, I don't know if, it, or to say it might be worse to be number two than to be stuck in the middle of the pack. I don't know about that. I mean, I do think you, at a certain point, the promoter starts to look at you differently because they go, well, if this guy can beat every other contender, then I want to stop putting contenders up against him because I can't continue to get people interested in him losing another fight to the champion indefinitely. There's only so many of those that I can try to sell. And he's just knocking off other fresh faces that otherwise might make for compelling title fights that I could sell. And so you kind of maybe get shoved off to the side a little bit at a certain point. And yet, I don't, I mean, there is a certain pride that you could be able to take and be like, the only person better than me is the best in the world at this division. And he's only better than me by a little bit. Like the, the differences, the improvements that Robert Whitaker was able to show between the first fight with Israel Adesanya and the second fight at this rate, Chad, the third fight, he might actually win. You know, I, I don't, I don't know if we need to blow our noses and go boo hoo, poor Bobby knuckles for being the second best middleweight in the entire goddamn world. Yeah, and I think that that's a fair point. And I think that there are a lot of guys who could fall into similar categories. I think Daniel Cormier, right away, as a guy who was obviously extremely good at two different weight classes uh, and came up short every time he fought John Jones. And that probably, you know, burned him. It probably still does when he thinks about it. They're still they're still not that friendly when they talk about each other. Uh, and it wasn't until he went up to heavyweight and won the title there that we really started to think of him, you know, as an all time great or or as uh, uh you know on the short list maybe of greatest guys of all time. And uh, I think some they, people probably deal with it differently. Have you ever you ever had a friend or did you ever personally lose like a state championship game, like in a in a sport? I had multiple friends who have both lost state and national championship games at their various levels of achievement. And when I talk to those guys, you know, we're, we're 20, 30 years down the line now. And I'm like, when that state championship game comes up, fuck, they're mad about it. And it doesn't seem like it's gotten any better over time. One one guy once told me, oh, it's only gotten worse. It's only gotten worse over time. <laughs> so I don't know. I just think pe people deal with it differently. And I think especially for athletic competitive types, this is the kind of thing that's going to stick in your craw over a long period of time. I don't know about Robert Whitaker. He seems like a, a well-adjusted, easygoing, nice guy, especially for an MMA fighter. So it's possible that he's going to look at things differently. But I bet there are a lot of guys out there who are like, oh, man, if not for BJ Penn, you yeah. know, maybe I would have been longstanding UFC lightweight champion. Yeah, but I also think that you're right. If there's somebody out there who is going to be able to make his peace with it one way or another, Robert Whitaker's that guy. Yeah. You know, I think we saw that just in his response after this fight. Next question this week comes to us from Shad Rap, who writes, I felt myself tearing up watching Roxanne Modafferi retire after her fight. There's been some really genuinely good people in this sport, and that's definitely one of them. Watching her sheer tenacity, grittiness, and positive personality over the years has been a joy. Pour one out for the happy warrior. 
Uh, wholeheartedly agree, of course. Roxanne Modafferi yeah. goes out there and loses this, her retirement fight via split decision to Casey O'Neill. Probably should have been unanimous, frankly, uh, in favor of Casey O'Neill. But we talked about Roxanne Modafferi last week over on uh, Patreon. And like I said over there, and I'm just going to say it again here, you know, you don't have very many people at all in this sport that seem to have a unanimous approval rating. Yeah. And Roxanne Monteferi is one of them. The uh, person who that almost everyone she's ever come across in this sport will tell you she's a great person. Uh, she is she is very genuine. She is, in fact, who she purports to be when the lights are on and when the cameras are on. Uh, and like I said last week, I'll just, again, reiterate, one of the true uh, pioneers of women's mixed martial arts, one of the original gangsters in this thing, one of the last of this original crop of people to to walk away from the sport and I think might well have had a bigger impact behind the scenes as like a friend, training partner, and coach to younger people than she did actually even in the cage, which I think, again, speaks to her uh, the moral fiber and the kind of person that she is. So, yeah, it's it's, it's bittersweet to see Roxanne Modafferi walk away from the sport, especially on the heels of the loss. But she seems happy with it. She seems happy with her career. She seems like a genuinely good person. And I think at this point, there there's nothing we can do besides wish her the best and, you know, hope things work out for her in her post-fight or post-fighting life. Yeah, and I think another thing that's worth noting one thing that gets pointed out a lot about Roxanne Modafferi is that you look at her and her nothing about her physique screams elite professional athlete or elite professional cage fighter. And, well, I think sometimes we're too quick to judge books by their covers in this sport. It is true that she was not blessed necessarily with great power or speed or athleticism and still, for a long time, was finding ways to get it done at a very high level in this sport. But what's more important and more, and more impressive to me is when you look at a fighter like this who has been through and survived and, you know, been victorious in so many different eras of MMA. I mean, if you talk about somebody who started MMA in 2003 and then retires in 2022, whether it's men's or women's, you're talking about somebody who was around for a few very different eras of the sport. And I think that's even more true on the women's side of things, where uh, the, the, the opportunities to fight and the development of the, the female side of the sport was a little slower to get started, um, but then went through more rapid acceleration over the years. And Roxanne Modafferi was there through like at least three or four different eras of the sport. And, you know, exits on a three-fight losing streak, but was still finding ways to win, you know, as recently as 2020. And that, I think, is a lot tougher to do than people realize, not only just because it means you have to continue evolving as a fighter to keep up with all the changes going on around you, but that you also have to do it with a body that is aging and only acquiring more bumps and bruises and stuff as you go on, because that's just the nature of this sport. To find a way to do all that and stay in it and keep that same hunger and love for it and a positive attitude about it. It's very, very difficult and very rare. Yeah. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Krumbopolis Michael. Okay. Who, That's a uh, Rick and Morty character, I believe. Okie dokie. Uh, he writes, Blood Diamond, 
a name he should have run by the CME consulting firm. So I'm loosely yep. watching uh-huh. the early prelims while doing chores. Good for you, Mike. Uh, I had to stop and gaze in wide wonder as Megan O'Leavy informs me that Blood, Blood Diamond is the upcoming fighter's name of choice because he, quote, wants to take away the stigma and negative con- connotation of the term and turn it into something positive. Uh, what name would you two name yourself in order to turn it into a positive? Dibs, first on the name Skid, last name Marks. Uh, so this well, was the uh, city kickboxing teammate of Israel Adesanya, uh, Mike Mathitha, who went out there with the nickname Blood Diamond on the early prelims, got choked out by Jeremiah Wells, technical submission first round. Uh, this is, I will say, I guess memorable in terms of a nickname, but also hard to know exactly what he's going for with with the nickname Blood Diamond. Yeah, well, I mean, like, and trying to, it seems like, make it more than a nickname even. You look at the topology page on it, and it just lists this one as Jeremiah Wells defeats Blood Diamond. Yeah. Like, not as a nickname even. And as far as this claim that trying to take away the stigma and negative connotation of the term, for one thing, I feel like just generally, as as a society, most people who have heard the term Blood Diamond by this point, they probably sort of got a fixed understanding of what that means. Not saying it would be impossible to replace that understanding with something else, but it would be difficult for a guy on the UFC prelims to do it. Just because a lot of people, not even aware that the UFC is going on, not watching the pay-per-views, not watching the prelims especially. And then if you're the guy who loses on the prelims, Let's say you got a long way to go before you are changing a very established term in people's minds. I don't I just don't know if the culture is right now up for reconsidering the term. Yeah. Like everybody kind of feels like they know what it what it refers to. One more question this week. We'll do this one from Sean Clark, who writes, There's been a lot of discourse lately regarding the return of the UFC to a standard traveling schedule. It would be my take that many of these apex level shows would garner minimal ticket sales in the U.S. market at least. Can you provide a take on how the UFC's return to stadiums might influence their match tiering going forward? Has the guaranteed money of the Disney era made live revenue irrelevant or will the live gates influence a change in matchmaking behavior? Uh, I don't think the live gate is irrelevant. It still makes money. Yeah, it's money and we know they love money. Uh, and last I saw, didn't it make up like 12% or something like that of the UFC's revenue on a normal year when they're out there, uh, doing their stuff. I thought it's something like that. Uh, on the other, even the, the apex shows, I mean, I, I get what you're saying that you don't think a lot of these JSF UFC fight night events are, are big ticket items, but when they would open up limited number of tickets in the UFC apex, did you see what the ticket prices were, were going for? Yeah. It, it was kind of a lot. Yep. So they were still able to sell people some pretty expensive tickets to even to fight events that weren't that star studded. Yeah. And remember, I think one of the reasons they took these fight night events out on the road in the first place was that if you're down there in Vegas, maybe you're depending on a tourist uh, fan base or something like that to, to fill even like the, a normal sized arena in Las Vegas with some of these lower wattage cards, but you start getting out to Billings, Montana or uh, Kansas city or, you know, even uh, China or 
Australia or Russia or any of the other places they want to go, places where you know that there are UFC fans who don't get to see the live UFC that often, then I think you have an easier time selling those tickets. And I think it was working for them in the before times. I have no doubt that it's going to work for them again once the UFC gets back to a normal travel schedule. I think there is a great, great luxury for the UFC to have this ESPN money and to have it coming in basically just for meeting the obligation of having those events and putting them on ESPN and ESPN Plus. And then on on top of that, you got the pay-per-view money and the licensing fees that are coming in, which is to say nothing of the other revenue streams, which are plentiful and uh, lucrative. But they're never going to give up on the live gate money, man. Because like you said, that's money. And at this point, it might even seem kind of like free money to the UFC. Right. Well, and... It also, when you're going out there and going to different places, it's not just the live gate money, but also some of these site fee deals like the UFC we know has with the the Toyota Center in Houston. Yeah. So, and they're looking to do more of that. I mean, that's one of the things that you see financial analysts point to when they're doing their uh, looks at uh, Endeavor stock and what the UFC brings to that whole picture is that the UFC has the potential to do even more of those site fee deals and find another revenue stream in that way. And the way you do that is by getting out on the road and, and taking those events to, from new, to new places. Yeah, that's why we keep going to Abu Dhabi, right? We keep going to Coming out the mouth of the Cobra. It's not because Dana White loves Ferrari World. It's not because uh, Ari Emanuel wants to go down a water slide and come out the mouth of a King Cobra Snake. It's because they keep giving them money to come yeah. there. And during uh, the pandemic we are led to believe pretty much paid their whole way with uh, with testing and a COVID bubble and everything else. So pretty good deal over there for the UFC and these site fees as well, going back to making Houston basically their home away from home at this point, Houston and Florida, uh, the two places that the UFC seems to, seems to keep kind of bouncing back and forth between for these bigger pay-per-view events. Uh, also two of the worst athletic commissions around in the United States, but hey, guys, we're not going to worry about that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's it's because they're getting that money. And because when uh, things were closed up for the pandemic, Texas and Florida both had uh, slightly more permissive views of what, what they wanted to do, let's say. All right. Just flinging open the doors. That's going to do it for listener mail. If you have a question, comment, or concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website co-main event, com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us right now though we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one well ben robert whitaker made things competitive in the main event of UFC 271, certainly a better showing than the first time he fought Israel Adesanya way back at UFC 243 in October of 2019. Nonetheless, Israel Adesanya escapes uh, with a hard-fought, but I think fairly clear-cut, unanimous decision. He retains the middleweight title. He remains undefeated at middleweight in the UFC, getting, I believe, his 11th straight victory in that weight class inside the octagon of course, we are omitting his light heavyweight loss at UFC 259 to Jan Blahovich back in March of 2021. 
Uh, but these are middleweight competitions, and Israel Adesanya, up to this point, has been the best right now at middleweight, the cream of the crop, and it doesn't seem like that's going to change in the near future. Uh, what did you think, I guess, about Robert Whitaker's performance, the changes that he made to kind of make this thing more competitive, but also uh, the job that Israel Adesanya, I guess, was able to do with his own physical tools and gifts just to kind of be a half step ahead here? You know, I I know that the co-main event podcast has a noted soft spot for our guy, Bobby Knuckles. And so we probably are going to be accused of taking a pro Bobby Knuckles stance here. And yet I do have to say that I was impressed by Robert Whitaker because he went out there on the first round and just, just going by that first five minutes, you see that first round, you see the way he looks when he goes back to his corner at the end of that, you go, man, it's going to be another bad night for him. He just, he doesn't look like he can do anything to Israel Adesanya. It looks like he's standing there kind of lost, getting his legs picked apart, uh, reacting to every feint, not quite knowing what's coming next and not able to really reach the guy when he wants to try to do anything offensive. And it looked like he was feeling that, you know, the, the conversation he had with his coaches in between rounds seemed to suggest that he was feeling that. And then he comes back in round two and is like a different fighter arguably wins round two. You could you could make a case and seems to get better and stronger as the fight goes on. And that, I think, is really, really tough to do. And that is the mark of a really good fighter. Not only, you know, he talked about putting himself back together to come back for this rematch after losing so decisively the first fight, but to also go through a smaller version of that same process during this fight. To come out there, it would be really easy to get discouraged. After the guy knocked you out in the first fight, the guy's been really holding it down as champ. You go out there in the first round and you can't do shit to him. It would be really easy to be like, damn it. Yeah. I'm going to lose again. And instead, to find a way to get back in that fight and make it competitive to where that you could arguably be standing there by the end thinking that the judges might say your name. Yeah. That's really tough to do. Yeah. In between rounds one and two, when you cut to Robert Whitaker's corner and his coaches are in there giving him all this advice and they're telling him all this stuff to do. And at one point they said, when he switches stances like that, kick him. And Robert Whitaker had this look on his face like, man, I would like to see you try. Like, <laughs> you can say, you can tell me all that stuff, but but yeah. like, it's easier said than done, my friend. Uh, but then, It's kind of like when uh, somebody keeps getting taken down and mauled on the mat in their corner saying, get up. I mean, okay, thanks. I am going to go ahead and uh, crib some of the uh, Robert Whitaker corner advice here because Rob, you got to believe is something that I'm folding up and putting in my back pocket for yep. later as part of my own coaching advice. You know, the kind of coaching advice I like. And <laughs> oh, yeah, well, you would love a Rob, you got to believe and then coach. What do you got? That's yep. that'll get you through like half of your, your fights. You got a corner. Yeah. Uh, but I thought it was impressive. Whitaker kind of marshals his forces there. And you could say rounds two through five were competitive, man. And uh, I saw some people online. I think people are in the minority, but they, you know, some people scored this thing for Robert Whitaker. And I wouldn't argue that vociferously against them. I thought it was a, you know, fairly clear cut win for uh, Israel Adesanya. But this was a close fight just round by round. And that's how we score them. And I thought each round was pretty close. Uh, but again, you know, it's just, if it reiterates anything to me, it's just like how big of a problem Israel Adesanya is at this weight, because, you know, like the emailer said early on, Robert Whitaker is really good. And without Israel Adesanya, he might still be the champ. He might've been the champ this entire time. And to see, uh, Robert Whitaker out there just looking outsized and outreached, uh, 
and kind of out, you know, outmaneuvered kind of just like Israel Asani has too many skills at this point, man. And, and right. Whitaker managed to take him down a couple of times. Couldn't really hold him there. And I think the, no. the, uh, melange of tricks and skills that Israel Adesanya possesses at this point to not only be an outstanding striker, but to kind of be a hard out in terms of taking him down and holding him there makes him, well, he's the champ. He's the best. No, you know, nobody's beat him at this weight yet. And, and it seems like he's just getting better and better. Right. I mean, the, the takedowns I thought was a little bit of a surprising thing because if you had told Robert Whitaker before this fight that he would be able to take Israel Adesanya down as many times as he did, I think that he would be really encouraged by that. And yet, it was like he was made of rubber, man. He, as soon as he hit the mat, he bounced right back up, never gave Robert Whitaker a chance to settle on top and to establish a position and establish any sort of top control. He was just immediately making him fight to hold on to him, even, to, to, to even maintain like a body contact with him. And you could see him make a little bit of an adjustment where it looked like he had an opportunity to get Israel Asanya's back, but he was up too quickly and he wasn't able to do much with it. And so the next time he was in that position, he jumped onto his back. Be like, all right, even if the guy's going to stand up, let me just jump onto his back and look for the choke there. Which, by the way, if you were sitting there with that like plus 1700 uh, Robert Whitaker via submission ticket. That was a moment where your eyes kind of bulged out of your head as he's wrapping his forearm around uh, Israel Adesanya's face. But he just could not get any sort of ground game going, even after being able to take him down a few times. And that seemed to me like maybe in part a lesson that Israel Adesanya learned from that Jan Blachowicz fight was that it's a lot tougher to get up when you let the guy establish that top position and you you take a second to think about it and then try to get up. Also, though, it's probably a difference between having to fight a a pretty big light heavyweight and a guy who is a little bit on the smaller side for middleweight. Yeah. And you, you're just not going to be able to hold a guy like Israel Asanya down if you're in the body of most UFC middleweights right now. But also, it's interesting to me because a friend of mine uh, who was, was texting me after this fight uh, and who, you know, has, has been an MMA fighter himself and owns an MMA gym and everything, and he was... he seemed was not that impressed with or not that convinced that Israel Adesanya deserved such a a convincing victory on the scorecards because he was like look Israel Adesanya is doing a lot of fainting and leg kicking but he's not doing a whole lot output wise and my point kind of was like well I mean Robert Whitaker's landing a jab and he's getting takedowns but he's not doing a ton with him and yet when Israel Adesanya offered that defense after the fight of like hey you want to win the belt you've got to come and take it you don't just do enough don't just like barely do enough on the scorecards and i hate that line of thinking man that like the champion doesn't have to do shit kind of except not lose or just you know it's okay for the champion to sit there and pot shot his way to a victory without having to really turn it on but anybody who wants to take the belt from the champion can't expect to do it the same way yeah i did think that this was a little bit like an example of a fight where i don't know felt like israel adesanya was waiting for some big offensive push on Robert Whitaker's part. I heard him, his coach saying, basically, we thought he was going to get desperate and go for broke, and that yeah. maybe that's what they're waiting for to try to capitalize on. And instead, Robert Whitaker felt like, I'm in this, and some of these rounds could be going to me. If you're Israel Asanya, though, you hear how close that one was on the scorecards, where if you know two judges give Robert Whitaker one more of those rounds, and it's entirely possible that they could have, and that costs you your title? Like, does that make you feel like, whoa, wait a minute, maybe I do need to be doing a little more in some of these fights? 
Yeah, it's hard to say, man. It's such a tough question. We've seen this from people at the highest level kind of time and time again in this sport that when you become the champion and you're getting everybody's best shot and you're fighting the best night in and night out and you you have more to lose and more at risk seemingly, not only is it really, really hard to maintain the focus and intensity just in training and preparation that it takes for you to stay there. But I think also they get a little conservative because they understand, yeah. you know, what a loss would mean. And I, if that was what was happening to Israel Adesanya, I think you could understand that. I know he's blamed it on boredom in the past, a couple of recent fights, but I don't, that might just be hashtag just saying stuff. Um, yeah. I don't know how, how bored you were when Robert Whitaker is snapping your head back with that jab. Right. Uh, I mean, I thought, you know, like I said, I wouldn't argue against anyone who really said that Robert Whitaker had won this fight. And I think it's kind of hard to judge sometimes when you are watching these things on the UFC broadcast and you get in this case, a play-by-play call, which was pretty fair, but also kind of pro Israel Adesanya, which I think you can understand because he's the champion and he's the draw and he's the guy that they want people paying attention to. Uh, If you watched it it without that commentary or you watched it at ringside, you might have a different uh, point of view. But for me watching it, even though I thought it was it was competitive and close. I mean, Israel Adesanya looked like the better middleweight MMA fighter to me in this fight. He did. And I I think. You know, first of all, the commentary, it did seem like early on they sort of decided that it was like a fait accompli that Israel Adesanya is going to win this one and started already talking about it as if like, well, he's clearly winning on the scorecards here. And I was like, mm, you don't know what these judges, we're in Texas, man. You don't know what these judges are going to do. These these rounds are closer than you guys are acting like they are. But I also thought, especially when I went back and watched it, that some of what makes them seem close, especially if you look at the difference between round one and round two, is that you have an expectation that Israel Adesanya looks like he's so much better and just has so much more that he can do that when he goes out there and Whitaker can't come up with any answers for him in the first round. And then when he comes out in the second round and actually manages to do something, there's a tendency to go, well, okay, look at that. The guy did something as opposed to nothing must've won that round. And I, I think that Israel Adesanya might find himself at in some instances fighting against that. Yeah. Uh, well, we will talk a lot more about what could be next for Israel Adesanya coming up in round three. Maybe we'll also talk a little bit about uh, the kind of puzzle that Robert Whitaker could present matchmakers in the future in that round as well. Uh, before we do that though, let's do, are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we'll move on to round number two. What's your, are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, Chad, you know, Joe Rogan was not on this week's uh, pay-per-view broadcast. Yeah, been been dealing with some stuff lately. Decided it seems maybe to lay low, let the heat die down a little bit. Uh, not not doing the commentary as scheduled for the UFC 271 pay-per-view. But then, as he is at home chilling out, waiting for the heat to die down at heat, which came in part due to accusations that his podcast had been spreading uh, misinformation on COVID. Uh, He apparently texts John Anik saying that he thinks Israel Adesanya has injured his right hand. It's It's a Dr. Joe Rogan moment when he's not even at the event. He's at home and still manages to offer a diagnosis, which according to Israel Adesanya after the fight, 
was wrong. That he said that there was nothing wrong with his hand. Did not injure his hand at all, according to Israel Adesanya. Nothing yeah, like that. Are you fucking kidding me? The guy is at home, kind of waiting for everybody to stop talking shit to him about possibly spreading some medical misinformation. And then, in a way, is texting in medical misinformation. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? How are you going to do that on your night off? On your night off, you're doing the Dr. Joe Rogan thing. I mean, you know what? It's Maybe it just goes to show that he, Joe Rogan knows one way to do this stuff when it comes. In a way, maybe it's encouraging. Even when he's just at home chilling. Even when he's just watching as a fan, he's still with the x-ray vision out here diagnosing people's phantom hand injuries. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, maybe that speaks to how much he believes in it, right? Like, he's not hes not just sitting at home being like, oh, I think Israel Adesanya might have hurt his hand. He's sitting at home being like, Israel Adesanya has injured his hand and I feel so convicted about this. I'm going to text John Anik during the live broadcast to let him know because this is information that needs to be broadcast to the world. That's... I just... I wish he would have done it via tweet and we would have got the tweet on the screen. Yeah. I feel like that that would have been the most UFC broadcast kind of way to do that. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of this story as an addendum, uh, you know, we thought that Joe Rogan originally was going to call UFC 271. Then it came out uh, last Friday. So pretty late in the week that Michael Bisping would replace him. And then according to Alexander K. Lee in this story over on MMA fighting that I'm reading, Uh, The UFC issued a statement to MMA fighting that said Rogan, quote, had a scheduling conflict that made him unavailable for Saturday night, which already I think, you know, a lot of people saw that. And, it you know, we raised some eyebrows, right? Because Joe Rogan has been going through some controversy right now. I believe our guy, Aruj Islam, a.k.a. Hate Nass Aruj, over on the, the Patreon page, was openly asking in the comments on some of our Patreon comment content, how long till Disney makes the call to pull Joe Rogan from UFC 271. And then on Friday, lo and behold, the guy won't be there. We find out he's not going to be there. So a lot of us, you know, we were already kind of calling bullshit on Joe Rogan, having a quote unquote scheduling conflict, preventing him from being at UFC 271. What I did not expect Ben is for UFC president Dana White to come to the post fight press conference and call bullshit on the scheduling conflict story. Are you fucking kidding me? Dana White kind of throws Joe Rogan under the bus. He says, there's kind of throws UFC's own like uh, media relations people. They're the one who put out the statement. And then he says, this is bullshit. He says, there's no conflict of schedule. White said, Joe Rogan didn't work tonight. Joe Rogan could have worked tonight. Uh, Joe, uh, I know that there, he said, I don't know what Joe Rogan had to do. You guys will have to ask Joe Rogan, but there was no Joe couldn't work or anything like that. I know that came out. It's total bullshit. Are you fucking kidding me? You've got Dana White basically being like, hey, we wanted to have Joe Rogan here. You'll have to ask him why he wasn't here. And also saying the statement that his company put out, the statement put out by the company that Dana White runs with an iron fist and has run for 20 years is total bullshit. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? Fucking kidding me? Somewhere. I know that came out. Because our company put it out. Yeah, there's a UFC PR person right now watching this happen being like, what? <laughs> <laughs> ben, you told me to... I just... 
God damn it. You fucking kidding me. Calling bullshit on your own bullshit. That's something. All right, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, there was a moment in round one of this heavyweight co-main event where Derek Lewis, showing off a little bit of an expanded game, goes out there, uh, gets tied to Ivasa down, which, raise your hand if you were saying before this fight, the foot sweeps of Derek Lewis are going to make all the difference. Yeah. But he gets tied to Ivasa down, and as Tuivasa is trying to get up, Derek Lewis is posting up on him and just jackhammering his head against the fence. And uh, one of the commentators, I'm not sure who it was, said something along the lines of, Tuivasa cannot continue to take these right hands from Derek Lewis. And I agreed. I saw what was going on there. I was like, yeah, you can't take too many of those. We've seen how that goes, man. We've seen what happens if people take one or two of those, uh, one right after another. And then it turned out, no, Tai Tuivasa can in fact, mm-hmm. continue to take these punches from Derek Lewis. And in fact, his game plan will kind of depend on it, bro. He will depend on his ability to get punched super hard in the head by a guy known for putting people to sleep when he punches them in the head. And he will invite exactly that kind of firefight and win it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Derek Lewis tried a double leg. He landed an inside trip and then later he had a throw. He had like kind of a judo throw. So (laughs) three different styles of takedowns from Derek Lewis. I know we've talked a lot in recent months about his expanded MMA game and his fight IQ and all that. uh, But he was really showing it off in this in this fight. I think, you know, what you said about Tuivasa taking those shots and coming back and, and still being able to win this is all true. And generally speaking, I think it's bad to have the mindset that uh, you can't be knocked out that like you can go ahead and get punched and you're going to be fine. But for Tai Tuivasa, it's got to, I would think, build some confidence here as he continues to traverse the heavyweight division and just sort of be like, well, I got socked super hard by Derek Lewis, the like predominant knockout leader in the entire company and was still able to come back and win. Uh, I would, you know, I wouldn't want to hang my hat on that every time, but that is, you know, at least, you know, you got the beard now to take the punches from the, the hardest hitters in this division. I also think though, we kind of got to give some props to Ty Tuivasa for being maybe a little bit more technical and maybe a little bit more canny, uh, than, than we thought he was going to be. Cause he was doing some, some good and smart stuff in this fight too. It's like a lot of good clinch work, a lot of stuff that he did, I think to disrupt Derek Lewis and the things that he was doing. And of course he's got that short inside elbow that he has used in fights before, uh, to win fights on the independent circuit. And you see it again here, where like he doesn't need a lot of room or space to land it. And he was doing a good job, I think, kind of compressing Derek Lewis's offense so that Lewis couldn't get off with those big shots, but fighting him at a range where Tai Tuivasa thought and knew that he could be dangerous. And ultimately, I think that's the strategy that that won him the day, albeit in a fight that, as I said, leading up to it, and I think now that we've seen it, we can both agree, you get two guys like this together that are just going to throw big old ham bones at each other. Uh, it's a coin flip, essentially. If these guys yeah. fought 200 times, each guy might win 100 times for all I know. Yeah, and yet I did feel like Derek Lewis was fighting the overall better fight. I mean, I think he was he was winning up until he lost. 
you know? Uh, I think that he had just a little more to show in that fight than Tai Tuivasa did, but also that short right elbow landed in close, and you could see that was, that was it, you know? that That's all it took. And, I, I mean... There's always a moment after one of these Tai Tuivasa knockouts where it just it feels like we're so wide open, just swinging hard with every single punch, and there seems like this moment of relief for him right after it's over, right before the the shimmy shake begins, right before we go shaking every everything your mama gave you up there for the cameras, and then onto the just absolute gauntlet of shoeys that awaits him both inside the cage and out. I mean, geez, for one thing, you you see the UFC security guy who has to try to wrangle Tai Tuivasa to the back where it's just one person after another with an outstretched shoe in one hand and a beer in the other. And that guy's just going to be like, well, okay, I guess he's going to do them all and we're going to get back there eventually. But it always seems like, man... He's walking a razor's edge with this fighting style. And yet, especially lately, it's been working out for him. And I I keep thinking about the Chad Dundas prophecy. It's not hard to imagine a situation where he wins maybe one more and is in there for an interim title fight. I mean, I could see see him throwing him into an interim title fight right after this. If the, the, the stars align in a certain way and that's what the direction the UFC decides to go. And... He always seems like he could kind of lose any fight if somebody comes in there with a the right game plan, but also that he's never more than one right hand away from winning it. He has won five fights in a row now, dating back to October of 2019 when he his last loss to Sergey Spivak, which was three in a row for Tai Tuivasa. He has certainly righted the ship since then and put together this streak. And I think you're right, man. Like, we don't know much about the heavyweight landscape right now, but assuming that Francis Ngannou stays true to his desire to either renegotiate with the UFC or to leave the UFC when his contract expires in early 2023. Uh, I think Tai is a live, probably underdog, but uh, like a viable guy to be in an interim title fight right now. And like, if you can't make a deal with uh, John Jones or Stipe Miocic, like who else are you going to get? It's kind of seems like Tai Tuivasa and or Cyril gone, all, all four of those guys are in the crown royal bag right now that you might shake up and just let two of them tumble out and have that be your your interim title fight. And so I was kind of joking around late last year when we did heavyweight futures right here on the proper. And I said, look at these odds on Taito Ivasa to be the heavyweight champ by the end of 2022. Like you should take a flyer on that, just considering how many wins in a row he has and that he's a fun guy that people like. And the UFC might start putting him in bigger spots. Now it seems like uh, he might well get that opportunity at some point during the ensuing 10 months or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really not that hard to imagine a situation in which that happens. And it also is not that hard to imagine that even if he's up against somebody uh, in an interim title fight who might be a technically better MMA fighter than he is, he always has a chance to win as long as he's upright and swanging. You yeah. know what I mean? It's not a style that I think is going to age tremendously well for Taito Ivasa, but 28 years old means basically that you are a baby in the heavyweight division. Yes. He could be out here doing this for a long time to come. Uh, so if he can remain 
uh, you know, more successful than he is unsuccessful. And if he can keep being a guy that, that people just generally seem to like, he seemed to win over the Houston crowd for God's sakes, after knocking out hometown hero, Derek Lewis out there. Uh, it's just hard not to, to like the sort of infectious enthusiasm, the half unhinged infectious enthusiasm that Tai Tuivasa has for this sport. So I think that he could be, you know, a, a modest capital G guy in this division for a long time to come. Uh, do you think the same is true of Derek Lewis? Like this is a guy that we have already seen flirt with retirement once he's 37 years old. It seems like uh, in his, his most recent incarnation as an MMA fighter, he has made strides as we've kind of talked about a lot to, to round out his game and be a better rounded fighter. He's one and three at this point with the losses to Cyril gone and tied to Ivasa. This is or one and two in his last three. I'm sorry. Uh, with those two guys and the win over Chris Dawkins. Uh, that's basically his 2021, 2022. He beat Curtis blades way back in February a year ago now. Uh, but what do you think about the long-term prospects of Derek Lewis tied to Ivasa called this a passing of the torch. Do you feel like that's accurate or do you feel like Derek Lewis is just going to be out here doing Derek Lewis stuff as long as he wants? I feel like there is a market for what Derek Lewis brings and that market will be very slow to dry up. And I think that the UFC realizes that too, that even if you're not still talking about Derek Lewis as a potential title contender, he's a guy that fans really like and know, and he goes in there and tries to knock people out. And that style, I think, will probably age fairly well compared to a lot of others, and people will still want to see it. And I think the UFC also knows you let that guy go, and if he still wants to fight, man, there are people out there who have a use for him. And so, I I mean, I, I didn't think we were going to be talking about Derek Lewis as a potential title contender this late into his career. Uh, I... I've, I've been already proven wrong by Derek Lewis. And so, you know how things go at heavyweight. He could knock out a couple of people and a couple other people could turn out to be ineligible or unavailable for one reason or another. And he could be right back in there. But even if he's not, I think that the, the Derek Lewis show still has enough people who want to see it that if, unless he wants to, he doesn't have to go anywhere. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think the million dollar question is whether or not or how long Derek Lewis will want to keep doing it. Like I said, he's he's kind of put one foot in retirement already back in those days talking about his his back was injured and he needed to maybe just yeah. take some time off to heal it up and now he he feels better, but like he seems like the kind of person who might not choose to do this over the long term. Uh maybe there would be other opportunities for him to do other different stuff. Uh but yeah, I don't I I think the only thing at this point limiting the continued marketability and viability of Derek Lewis is whether or not he wants to be that guy. And uh, that will have to be a, a question that he answers for himself. And honestly, uh, he's a better fighter all around and smarter fighter than he was you know, this time three years ago. So it's not as if the guy sucks and then has to start thinking about something else. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, unless something crazy happens, I think we are left to assume that Jared Cannonier is likely your number one contender at middleweight with his win over Derek Brunson at UFC 271, one uh, that frankly looked like it wasn't going to go 
Jared Cannonier's way in the early going, but he showed some of the unique skills that he has to turn a fight around kind of on a dime here as he lands a hard right hand uh, sort of in a scramble against Derek Brunson and kind of changes the entire trajectory of the fight, ultimately getting this knockout win in the late stages of the second round. At this point, it feels foolish to bet against Israel Adesanya at 185 pounds. He's just been that good against everybody. And I think in some ways, when you think about 37-year-old Jared Cannonier potentially approaching a title fight against Adesanya, you might think ho-hum, like the Israel Adesanya has all but cleaned out the division, and now we're going out there and we're having him fight aging guys like Jared Cannonier. I think if, uh, a couple of reasons why I think Jared Cannonier might make at least an interesting title contender. I'm not going to tell you I think he wins because I don't know if I think that, but like I think his size and strength and power and his his ability to change things with one strike and the fact that he has a lot of experience going out here and fighting these bigger guys who were able to give Israel Adesanya some trouble in the form of Yanni Blackjacks when those guys fighted, fight, fought at uh, light heavyweight. I don't know, man, like just physically speaking, I feel like there is a possibility that Jared Cannonier could be an interesting matchup for Israel Adesanya. Agree or disagree? I think that he is an interesting matchup in the sense that it, it gives Israel Adesanya a good opportunity to get back to knocking people out. And reminding people that he can be a really exciting fighter when he turns it on. Because I think that the things Jared Cannonier excels at and can do well, he will not be able to do super well against Israel Asanya. I 100% agree that he has earned the right to try, especially you look around at the state of the division right now. Why not him next? You know, I, I think that absolutely put him in there, uh, let him bring all the stones of the earth that he wants, get him in there and let's, let's go ahead and have that fight and, and find out. But I don't know, man. I think you see him. I know the transitive property in MMA doesn't work, but you see how his fight against Robert Whitaker turned out and the ways in which Robert Whitaker beat him. You see like the physical dimensions he brings and their similarity, in fact, to Robert Whitaker. And then you see what Israel Adesanya can do with that. I think Israel Adesanya just kind of pieces him up from the outside. And then if, when he gets desperate and tries to come in there and land something big, I think he gets knocked out. I, I mean, I could absolutely be wrong about that. It could end up being a more competitive fight. Um, but I just, I don't think that a fighter like Jared Cannonier is the one that is going to be the biggest threat to somebody like Israel Adesanya right now. If you were a UFC matchmaker, would you lean more toward Cannonier at this point? Or would you lean more toward a guy like Sean Strickland, who has won six fights in a row, uh, but his most recent win a couple weeks ago against Jack Hermanson and the one previous to that against Uriah Hall are far and away the, the highest profile on that list. He's still been kind of working his way up through middling middleweight contenders. Would, do you think Sean Strickland is more attractive or less attractive than Jared Cannonier as an opponent? If I'm the UFC right now, what I'm saying is Jared Cannonier has earned the right to be next. Sean Strickland, go show us something. Show us something big. And if you want to, if you can do it quickly, maybe you can jump the line. But if not, show us something big so that you can be next. Because he's got to go out there and fight somebody higher up in the ranks and ideally finish somebody. 
you know? And I, I think that Jared Cannonier, he's here on this pay-per-view where they're already sort of serving as a middleweight backup to the, the middleweight title fight. And he goes out there against Derek Brunson, a guy who's been at the top for a while there. And... Puts him away violently, yeah. emphatically, you know? And it did seem like Derek Brunson had uh, a pretty good wrestling-based game plan early on. And then, I don't know if it was just getting tired or getting caught or a combination of the two. At some point in, in the second round there, he started to look like a different person. Like, yeah. he just started to look lost and, like, his legs weren't really under him. And just lunging even more than usual in a way that got him into trouble pretty quickly against Jared Cannonier. And so that's a big finish for him. And I think, you know, he gets that moment where he gets to ask for Dana White's undivided attention, tell people stop distracting the man while I talk to him and says, you know, me next. I got next. And that that's how you make a case. Yeah. That's all the things that we ask somebody to do. Right. Go out there, finish somebody, take advantage of that moment in the spotlight. He did all those things. And so I think that especially since there don't seem to be any better ideas in the immediate future, he should get next. Sean Strickland, in the meantime, should work on learning from that example, perhaps, so that he can get his time. I think, it, you know, we, we saw Israel Adesanya get hit in this fight against Robert Whitaker, even against a guy that he was kind of outmatching from a physical uh, skill standpoint, from a size standpoint. Uh, and we saw Jared Cannonier, I think, change his whole fight in that one right hand that he landed against Derek Brunson. It seemed like Brunson got stung by that right hand, and he was like, okay, I'm basically going to take the rest of round two to regroup. And then kind of right at the one-minute mark, Brunson tried to take him down again, I think, you know, to try to salt away the round or at least make the round competitive heading into the third. Uh, and he got hit again numerous times in that sort of clinch situation, and then he, he went down and he got knocked out cold on the ground. Uh those are the kind of skills that I feel like could be dangerous for Jared Cannonier against Israel Adesanya because Israel Adesanya, uh, he's he's outstanding, but he he does get hit occasionally. He got hit by Robert Whitaker. I feel like if if Jared Cannonier can hit him, he could do some things. I wouldn't put all my hopes on it. Maybe I'm just trying to talk myself into an interesting fight, but uh, I think there is some potential there for Jared Cannonier to be an interesting opponent. Uh, remember last week when we got an email asking us about stoppage time? Yes. About, Hey man, maybe if we're an interest in an interesting situation at the end of a round, uh, we kind of, we kind of let it go. We we see what happens. Let it play out a little bit. Derek Brunson is out here wishing for that stoppage time this yeah. week. Cause he damn near had <laughs> the rear naked choke on, uh, Jared Cannonier at the end of the first Jared Cannonier all, but gets, Saved by the bell in this thing in some ways and then comes back to win. Could have been different if we had that stoppage time, Ben, folks. Yeah, but don't you think also people would fight differently if they knew the stoppage time was an option on both sides of the coin there? That maybe one of the reasons he accepted that position, that Jared Cannonier accepted the position that he was in there was he knew short time here. He's not going to be able to choke me unconscious in this amount of time. Just, I'm just saying, stoppage time. Uh, well, I promise we would talk a little bit about Robert Whitaker, who obviously just got defeated by Israel Adesanya, but still seems really good and a really high-level contender here. What kind of problem do you think he is from a matchmaking perspective at this point? And if you were, if I put the ball in your court and I was like, all right, you're in charge of the UFC, uh, what do you do here with Robert Whitaker at 185 pounds? It's tough because I do think you have the problem, uh, like I mentioned earlier, if you don't want this guy to knock off too many contenders. And yet, you also, 
I think the it's going to be hard to avoid using him as some kind of a gatekeeper one way or another. I mean, I know people, everybody hates that term. Everybody gets their backup if you even mention it. But wouldn't you admit that if we saw somebody come out there in the middleweight contender picture and beat Robert Whitaker, we would go, okay, give that person a title shot next. They clearly deserve it. If you can beat Robert Whitaker, then you're right up there. But then at the same time, if you have somebody where you're looking at them down the road as a potential title challenger, like a Sean Strickland, do you really want to match him up with Robert Whitaker because of the high chance that Robert Whitaker beats him? And then there goes the whatever future plans you might have had for Sean Strickland. And, yeah. and you don't get anything in return for it that you can then turn around and use. So I, I knew as soon as this fight was over and he lost that there were going to be people who were going to tell him, go to a different weight class one way or another. And yet, because of his dimensions, I feel like that's tough for him. Because I, I think... Right now, with his his adult man body, I think making welterweight, again, would be pretty tough for him. Uh, and I think if he goes up there to 205, they're just giants compared to him. So it seems like he's kind of got to stay at middleweight. And yet, I don't know, the UFC, he's fought so many different people already that when you're looking around, who would be an interesting fight for him, but also not ruin the potential immediate plans for title contenders... It's hard to come up with too many names, man. Yeah. And, you know, you're you're running into a little bit of a problem that there just aren't a ton of super fun guys at middleweight. So it's not like there yeah. are a ton of uh, fun matchups for Robert Whitaker. I keep him as far away from Sean Strickland as I can if I'm the UFC matchmaker. Like, that's – I don't think there's any question Robert Whitaker beats Sean Strickland and then you lost your guy. You lost your guy that could shape up as an opponent that Israel Adesanya might just style on – in a main event at some point in the future. So like, yeah, I think he's a little bit of a puzzle. Uh, maybe like a Paulo Costa type type guy at this point. I'm just trying to think of someone who would be like kind of a high profile matchup for, for Rob Whitaker and, and might also be kind of fun. Like, I guess, you know, somebody like Kevin Holland could, uh, you know, bring some excitement prior to the bell and, and might be the kind of person that, that would be interesting at least to see Robert Whitaker fight but i agree he's in like kind of a tough spot at this point uh so i guess we'll just have to wait and see what happens there um all right do you want to do just saying stuff and then we sure. will uh we'll get out of here for this week ben i got to uh give a shout out to our guy uh brendan aka curse diamonds as he's known on the socials and in the cme universe for calling my attention to this specifically but this week i'm just saying did you see this calvin cater modello live spot <laughs> On the pay-per-view yeah, where I don't even know what we're trying to do here, frankly, with Calvin Cater, who up to this point has seemed like a nice guy that we all like, uh, does this like weird live performance art spot for Modelo where he bumps into a guy at the bar, steals his hat, and then Mm -hmm. turns out he's also Mr. Steal Your Girl. Uh, I'm just saying what what the fuck are we doing? What is this? Like, <laughs> like when I'm a drink, get drink Modelo and act like an asshole. Modelo. What? <laughs> no, what is going on here? This is terrible. And the hat of all the hats to steal. I don't know if that'd be the one I'd want. 
You know? You know what that is? It's a terrible look for everybody. It's a terrible look for Calvin Cater. It's a terrible look for Modelo. It's a terrible look for the guy with the cowboy hat. It's a terrible look for the young lady who has to walk out with Calvin Cater at the end of it. I'm I'm just saying that's I don't you lost me, man. Like this, I'm I'm in the dark over here as to what we're even doing. I think this one sounded better in their heads, honestly. When we were in the the planning stages of this one, it sounded a lot cooler and like we're doing a fun little spot here. This is terrible. Then, this is like something you would have seen in the UFC like 10 years ago. This is just awful. Inst- instead, it just ends up being baffling. It's just bad. 100% bad all the way around. Just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, this week, I'm just saying, you know, I've been doing a lot of thinking about my future lately and wondering, you know, what 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 you want to do about with your future, what, what the next moves are going to be, all that kind of stuff. And then while I was watching the UFC 271 pay-per-view, it all clicked for me. And it clicked the moment I heard the words, official ambassador of Howler Head. Okay. <laughs> I don't see how I can not apply. It's a, it seems like an exciting opportunity, yeah. frankly. Uh, from what I understand, you apply to be an official ambassador of this banana-infused whiskey company that Dana White founded and keeps pitching on the UFC broadcasts. And you get opportunities for meet-and-greets and and, uh, cool merch, like maybe a t-shirt or something like that. Um, No talk of any money, per se. Sounds like your your kind of gig so far. Any actual compensation for being uh, an ambassador for this banana-infused whiskey brand, but an official ambassador? I mean, that looked pretty good on the resume. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's a very important-sounding title, for sure. I invite everyone out there listening to the sound of my voice to join me on this exciting adventure as I embark on this new chapter of my life. Just waiting to hear back from them. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's I got to get the green light on this, right? I mean, I'm, I'm so qualified. If anything, I'd say you're overqualified. This, yeah. This is the first step toward you wearing a banana suit, standing in a bar somewhere with a platter of banana flavored whiskey. Yeah. Trying to get passersby to, to do a free shot while Calvin hey. Cater steals somebody's girlfriend on the other side of the bar. You guys got a second to talk about Howler Head? I'm an official ambassador. See, I I mean, you got it down, man. You got my vote. Have you heard the good news? Nope. Brothers and sisters. I mean, the good news about Howler Head banana infused whiskey. See, I mean, listen, if if they don't choose me as one of the official ambassadors, it will be an act of self-sabotage on their parts. Yeah. That's how perfect I am for this. Well, and I have no doubt that the folks over at Howler Head have a, a tight business plan so i they'll call you i'm sure they'll call you Mm -hmm. all right that's gonna do it for this week's co-main event podcast thanks to everybody for listening of course uh we'll be back all week over on the patreon page leading up to this ufc event where we got this uh what is the main event here you got uh, johnny walker against jamal hill in a light heavyweight fight that's the fill-in after we had to move rafael dos anjos and rafael fiziv uh, to UFC 272, so a little bit of a uh, of a a do over 
here, a little bit of a scramble. We had to just pull some names out of the hat to make this happen, but that's coming up on Saturday. We'll probably talk about that. We'll talk about other stuff. We'll have a, a good time. Join us over there, patreon.com slash co-main event. As for right now, thanks for listening, everybody. We are done. We are through. We are out. So do you think the uh, Montana Sports Bet app will let me place a wager on whether anybody Super Bowl style prop bet, and yeah. uh, maybe I don't know. Let's have some fun. I think even if the sports betting app won't, won't let you do it, maybe some of these dangerous people that you were talking about at the beginning of the show might take that action. And I, can't, might, I can't show my face down there. I mean, it's, not, it's, not, it's not safe for me. A last gasp for you to get yourself out of this hole. Maybe you bet big on it. If, if Dakota Rick sees me around anyway, he's going to take the coat. That's that's.